passionate about his people, who loves his people, who hears them crying out for help, and who comes to their rescue and redeems them, buys them out of slavery, brings them into freedom, and now wants to give them a foundation to run in freedom. So the Ten Commandments is God laying out the runway markers saying, hey, here's the boundaries. If you stay within this, you're going to be running in the blessed life. Here's my blessing laying out before you. I've laid it out before you. Walk in it. It's, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. Take it. But beware, because when you step over here, you're stepping out of my blessing, and there's, there's pain on the other side of that. So we're going to be in the, on the 10th command today, but first, we're going to do a little review here, all right? See, see how well you've been keeping up here. All right, who wants to take a shot at the first command? What? Yeah, have no other gods. All right, number two. Ooh, come on, church. This is some pretty foundational stuff here. We've been on it for the last several weeks. I'm hoping that you took more away than the first command. That's a good one. It's a beauty. It's a dandy. A great place to start. But let's, let's keep going. What's the second one? Yeah. Make no images of Yahweh. What's the third one? Yes. Don't misuse Yahweh's name. We talked about that. Um, that it's more than just using His name as a curse word. Much more than that. It's any time we apply the Lord's name uh, to anything that doesn't accurately represent Him, His will, His desires, His character. What's the uh, fourth one? Yeah, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What's the fifth one? Man, I thought, sure, there'd be a bunch of you that were a lot quicker on the draw with this one. Yes, honor your parents. Honor your parents. What's number six? Yes, don't murder. Number seven? Yeah, no adultery. And we went a little deeper with that, that, that it really, though in, in Exodus 20, targets specifically adultery, the violating of the marriage covenant, that that really it, it has an expanded application that applies to sexual morality and purity in our lives, period. What's number eight? Don't steal. Number nine? Yeah, don't, yeah, don't bear false witness, right? And number ten? Don't covet. And that's where we're at today. So, uh, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Now, just have it firmly implanted in your mind and just the way you think about uh, what God says, that, that Exodus 20 is not God's list of do's and don'ts. Exodus 20 is God's guidance and wisdom to you that of where his blessing lies and where it doesn't. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey 
or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, um, now we can take a Pharisaic view of this and go, well, I have not coveted my neighbor's ox or his donkey, right? Uh, or we can dive a little deeper and figure out what is it that God's getting at that really meets us in the here and now, today. First, let's take a look at what does it mean to covet here? What does that actually mean? What does the word covet mean as it's used here? It means to yearn to possess, to lust for. In fact, uh, in other places in Scripture, this very word that here is translated covet gets translated as lust. Um, Strong desire for what belongs to another. And really, all of the, what, what is at the heart of, of coveting is really a, a disregard for others, for their well-being, for their rights. Um, that, and coveting is uh, really, I guess, um, I, I hate to be too Western here and put everything in a nice, tidy little box, uh, but coveting has a distinction from just uh, jealousy in that coveting uh, goes from, hey, that person has something that I'd really like to have. I'd like to have that someday and, and have this sort of jealousy that, you know, they have it and I don't. But coveting takes it a step further to that contemplation of, I don't just want what they, uh, something like what they have. I want what they have. That thing that they possess, it should be mine. Um, it's, it's, you know, a couple of two-year-olds sitting in a sandbox and one clobbering the other over the head because they want the toy that's in, in the other's hands. That's, that's coveting. And coveting is so destructive for obvious reasons, uh, both in our own life and in the fellowship of believers, in the family of God. Now, the context of Exodus 20, remember, this is not... The Ten Commandments to all people everywhere in the world. Now, it can be certainly received by all people everywhere in the world, but specifically, the Ten Commandments were giving to those people who had committed themselves to walk in covenant faithfulness with Yahweh. So, in our modern context, we would say, God gave this to the church. Right? So, this is first to the church. Now, it has a broader application than that. These are, this, this is uh, Exodus 20, carves out a path for anybody who would walk in this, believer or not, is going to be blessed by abiding by these. But God specifically targeted His people in this. So when He says, you shall not covenant, covet, He's specifically addressing the Israelites, the people who have said they're, they're going to walk in covenant faithfulness with Him. But the question arises, and it does later in Scripture. Jesus actually addresses this question. Okay, so that now we know what covet means, but um, who is my neighbor? The age-old question, right? Who is my neighbor? Well, I'll give you the short version. It's the person that you're supposed to love, according to Leviticus 19.18. So the person, the neighbor, you know, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus. Uh, in the context uh, still of uh, 
of God's law and how we're to operate with one another. The neighbor here that you're not supposed to covet is the same neighbor that you're supposed to love with God's love. Here's an interesting thing, I think, about um, the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of there's a lot of overlap in the Ten Commandments, meaning it's kind of hard to just break one of them without breaking several of them all at once. In fact, um, coveting is just directly referred to and linked with idolatry throughout Scripture. So that if you break number 10, you by default break number 2. That you're applying your devotion, your worship, uh, your ultimate love to something other than Yahweh. That perhaps you don't have this physical image that you've carved out for worship, but you've latched on to something else that you have given the affections of your heart to, your devotion to, that has taken the place of God. So we have, uh, it's kind of like uh, um, in, in math class there where I learned this really cool thing. It just rocked my world. It's like, I, it just, it, it, it opened up my world. When I learned that a square was a rectangle, but a rectangle is not necessarily a square. It's like, See, the square possesses all the characteristics required to be a rectangle, but a rectangle only sometimes possesses the characteristics required to be a square. Coveting possesses all the characteristics of idolatry. Idolatry is not necessarily always coveting, but the two are distinctly and intimately linked. Jesus warned about idolatry and about coveting in Matthew chapter 6 it's kind of interesting how um, look at Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 Jesus says do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus warns that when you begin to give the affections of your heart, the desires of your heart towards things that are, that are not eternal and even, uh, even beyond that, the things that are not of God, that, that you are stepping into territory that... Uh, is destructive for you. And, and when, you, when we place our, our desires and our affections in things, in people, in uh, perhaps reputation, um, status, whatever it be, that we're trying to obtain and hold on to something that is going to be given away at the end of our life. Those things are going away. Those things are passing. And God offers us things to invest our time, our heart, our life into things that are going to last forever. Things that can never be taken from us. 
things that when they, when they, when they bury me, that I, I have taken possession of some things that will reside with me for eternity. That's incredible because the stuff that you see, it's staying here, right? So guarding our heart becomes a really important and really important thing for us who want to follow God. Coveting here, you know, I mentioned that uh, it's hard to break just one of the commandments. Coveting is, um, we might even call it a gateway sin, so to speak. Because coveting is like a short step from breaking pretty much all the other commands. Let's just look at Exodus chapter 17 here um, and explore that thought a a minute. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So if we kind of war game this out and you're coveting your neighbor's house, meaning you're stewing on it, you're, you're not just thinking, man, someday I'd like to have a house like that. You're thinking, I want that house. I deserve that house. You know, that guy's a lazy bum. I should have that house. And you, you, we start to really stew on this. And let our heart go to a pretty dark place on this. And then we start to think about ways that we can get that house. You know, like maybe we start to entertain ideas like, I mean, I hope that none of this is true of any of you, and I doubt that it is, but if you really start walking this out to its logical ends and it's unrestrained, we start to think things like murder's a possibility, right? If there's nobody there to own that house, then somebody else can own it, and that could be me. Um, Bearing false witness, if I can hurt that guy's reputation bad enough that he has to leave town, then maybe that house could be mine. So it's a short step, coveting, from entering into breaking other sins. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. You can see this. This is a very short step, again, from adultery. Right? Um, you shall not covet the, his servants. You shall not covet his ox or his donkey. Um, his side-by-side. Right? The rose bush out front. Whatever it is. You can see there's a, you're a short step from, if you're really in the heart of coveting here, you're a short step from stealing. So this is an important one for us to really guard our hearts against. Because when we guard our hearts from coveting, we're also guarding it from entering into some of these other areas of destruction for us. Look at Joshua chapter 7. We won't go into the, the whole of Joshua, what's going on in Joshua chapter 7 here, but I think even without the full context, it is clear to see here what's going on. Joshua chapter 7 verse 20, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. He coveted them and he took them. The the sinner within us 
when that sinner is unrestrained, this is how we often will live. We see something we like, appeals to our eyes, we covet it, and then we take it. There is a progression from coveting to the taking of it. Now, in this particular example, the effects of this weren't just with Achan. The effects of this sin rippled throughout the community of God. It affected everyone in the, in the community of believers. There's another example that I would like to look at. and we won't, You can turn there or not. Actually, turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read the, the first little bit of this. King David stepped on this uh, escalator as well. And it, it had devastating consequences for the rest of his life. For him, for his family, for his kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Start verse 1. In the spring of the year the time when kings go out to battle, David, King David, I might add, sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged them, or besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a woman bathing And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Hey, first, first off, it's good to take warning here of how this starts off. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, King David, when he should be going off to battle, relegated that responsibility to someone else who would lead the troops in battle. And King David uh, stays out of the battle and stays home instead of leading his troops. My 8th uh, grade home ec teacher she, she left me with little nuggets of wisdom. One of them is, uh, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. I can hear her saying it. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. And the truth of it is, uh, it's true for all of us, but man, is it ever true for a young man. Guys, we were not made to have idle minds and idle hands. It, it's not a good fit for us. We find ways to make our minds and hands not idle, and it is usually in a bad way, or often in a bad way. King David should have listened to my 8th grade home ec teacher, because I'm telling you it would have saved him a ton of grief. So that was, that was a mistake here, and it has rippling consequences. So, while David should be off, in battle with his troops, he's laying on the couch and gets out, stretches legs, walks out on the roof and looks down and sees a woman bathing. 
Then what happens? David begins to covet. I don't just want a woman. I want that woman. David's in territory here that's leading in some really bad ways here. And then, where does it go from there? Adultery. Now, if you read the rest of the story, you see that's not the worst of it. I mean, it's bad enough there. It's already bad enough that a king would, would take the wife of his subject as if he had any right to do that. Now, earthly speaking, he may have had an earthly kingly right to do that, but before God, he had absolutely no right, and King David knew he had no right to do that. And yet he did. Keep reading the story. You get that she sends word that she's pregnant. King David realizes that he's in a bit of a situation now. And so he sends word out to the battlefront, send her husband home. Send Uriah, her husband, home. With the idea that, hey, this guy's been on the battlefield. He's going to want to snuggle with his wife when he gets back. Here's the thing. What Uriah says is, my men are sleeping out there on the battlefront. Far be it for me to go home and now cozy with my wife. Sleep in a nice warm bed and get a hot meal. When my guys are out there laying on the battlefront. So he sleeps at the king's doorstep. So the king tries, King David tries something else. He says, maybe if I can get this guy drunk, he'll kind of forget what's going on and wander home to his wife. But Uriah doesn't do that. So he sends him back to the uh, war front with, with an order to be given to his superior, Joab. And, I mean, wrap your head around what David, what length David is going to here to cover his tracks. That all started with, first of all, David not going and doing his own responsibility, what he was responsible for, and then, and then covet, coveting, and then where that leads, how deeply down this path it goes. So, King David sends an order to Joab to send Uriah to the, to, to the worst spot of the battlefront. And then when it gets in the heat of the moment, have the, have the rest of the troops fall back and leave him stranded out there to be killed in battle. David sends this order to Joab in Uriah's hands. Uriah carried his own death sentence to Joab. The the gall of King David, not just to order his execution, but to send it by his own hand. Uriah was a, had, had exhibited himself a devoted, loyal of loyals uh, to King David, and yet King David sends his very death order in his own, in his own hands. It gets worse. Uriah's killed on the home front. David conspires with Joab and says, hey, let's get our story straight because you're probably going to be questioned on this. And when you're questioned on this, here's what you say. So they have their story worked out. Word gets back. Uriah died. Um, Bathsheba grieves. And uh, after the allotted time for grieving, David steps in as the compassionate redeemer. I'm going to take care of my loyal subject's bride. 
He has served me faithfully, and I'm going to care for his wife. How noble of him. Bearing false witness. David bears false witness by posing as this compassionate redeemer of Bathsheba. And yet the truth is, he was a greedy, conniving, murdering, lying thug. That's, that's how he operated right there. Now, praise God, the rest of the story goes on that God gets his attention. David repents in a major way. And there, there's a major heart change in David. But if you read the rest of the account through 2 Samuel chapter 12, you see there are, there, there are consequences for David for the rest of his life. Disastrous consequences for his family. Where did it start? It started with him walking out on the roof and letting his heart and mind dwell on obtaining that which did not belong to him. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 12 says, Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. Coveting is associated with evil, wickedness, unrighteousness, and the evil one. But those who are righteous, those who are devoted to following God and honoring Him, will resist that temptation and bear the fruit that resembles godliness. Look at Luke chapter 12. Jesus again addresses this. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the, uh, the two boys in the sandbox. That's kind of what's going on here. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This isn't fair. Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You have the God of the universe watching, watching uh, two men act like children fighting over crumbs really, from a divine perspective. And Jesus says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods And I will say to my soul, soul, mm, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Be on guard against covetousness. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, hey, the devil, he's sneaking around like a lion that's hungry to devour you. So be watchful. Be ready. 
there's a couple different ways that coveting affects us. One is individually, and the second one is communally. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul deals with um, this communal aspect of coveting, or speaks to it anyways. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, remember he's writing to believers here, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the backdrop is Christ gave his life for you. He so demonstrated his love for you, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for you and that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's the love that God has expressed and shown for you. So, walk in that same kind of love towards others. Verse 3. This is, this is then a little bit of insight on what that's going to look like for the person who's walking in that kind of love. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Apostle Paul says this is stuff that shouldn't, these things shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence with your name. As a follower of Christ, if someone were to make an accusation against you, your life should be lived in such a way that nobody would believe it was credible. These things shouldn't even be mentioned together. That as the body of Christ, it's proper among saints for there to be no coveting of one another. In fact, we're to have each other's backs. We're to be there to help each other in time of need. We're to support each other encourage each other, help protect one another. Not be the place that you need to be afraid of, the one you need to be scared of and watching your back against. The Apostle Paul addresses coveting in a little more uh, individualistic way here in Colossians chapter 3. Though I mean, I say individual and, and corporate or communal. The Apostle Paul and Scripture never distinguish really between the two. They both are kind of one and the same. There is a communal and individual aspect to our walk with God. It is not just me and Jesus. Um, it's, it's all of us together, working together as the family of God to help each other on in our walk with God. But having said that, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So in other words, the Apostle Paul says, you profess to be a believer and follower of Christ. If that is true, then your old person that you were before you came to Christ, 
That person was crucified with Christ. And he no longer lives. But the new you, that new life that is born anew of God, has been raised to life just as Christ was raised from the grave. You're not the person you were before Christ saved you. Romans chapter 8 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for you if you truly are in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation. You, you are distinguished now from that old person that you were because now you belong to God. And He looks at you not through a lens that sees the, the depth of your depravity and your deserving of His wrath, but that you now are covered in the righteousness of Christ. You are hidden in Christ. So this is the backdrop to what Paul says next. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's not becoming of you. It has no place in you anymore. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, sexual impurity, sexual passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When you are coveting somebody else's stuff, or their reputation, um, or anything that belongs to them, you, you are worshiping a false god. And the Apostle Paul says, that's not who you are if you are a follower of Christ. So don't live like who you were, live like who you are. I want to ask, ask you today, um, first of all, if, you're a, if you profess Christ as your Lord and your Savior, are you living in accordance with Him? Are you, in, living, are you walking in step with Him? Or are you allowing the old person that you were before you came to the cross, allowing that old person to dictate what your life looks like, leading you into covetousness, covetous desires and thoughts? Things that should not be mentioned in the same sentence as I love and follow Jesus. But I also love somebody else's stuff and I can't wait to get my hands on it. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? Because it is. So are you walking in step with Him? Are you putting to death that person that you were and walking in the new life that God brought you into. Just like the Israelites. God rescued them out of slavery. And now He's trying to keep them from wandering back into various versions of the same thing that He pulled them out of. My second question is, uh, well, along with that, if you find that your heart and your mind, they just haven't been right with the Lord. You've not been um, you've been coveting other people's stuff. You've been contemplating this on a deeper level than just, huh, that's a cool car. But it goes a lot deeper than that. It crosses over into idolatry. It consumes you. Way too much of your heart is wrapped up in this. Confess that to God and repent of it. Turn away from it. Like Susie mentioned, the heart 
having it cleaned. First John says, if we confess our sins to God, He's faithful and just. And He's going to cleanse us from that impurity. That junk that we're just allowing to just latch on to us and we're carrying it around, God's going to clean that off for us if we come to Him and confess it and turn away from it. He's going to teach us a new way of thinking, a new way of desiring. So confess it and turn away from it. My second question is this. Have you truly ever given your life to Christ? Are you, as Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, have you been raised with Christ? Have you been given that new life that Jesus promises when He says you must be born again, you must be born anew? Born anew by a life that you can't get on your own. You can't go back in the womb and be born a second time as Nicodemus kind of questions. But rather that you need to be born anew with a life that only God can give you. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all that come to Him are going to find it. Have you done that? Have you come to Christ said, Lord, Take my life, take my sin, nail it to the cross. Thank you for dying on behalf of me, a sinner who doesn't deserve it. Forgive me and make me new. I want that new life that you said you died to give me. Just as you rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, rescue me out of slavery to my sin and out of the path of your judgment. God will listen to that prayer. God listens to the prayer of somebody who really means it when they say, God, save me. Save me. My question is, have you gotten there yet? Maybe you're there today. If you're hearing this message and you have not given your life to Christ, God's making that appeal to you right now of what He's offering you, forgiveness of sin, and the hope of eternal life, a new life in Him. Let Him nail that old person to the cross and give you a new life, a new purpose, and teach you a new way. Fathers, we consider Your words and this precious gift that You have given to us of salvation. Lord, we ask that You would help us to guard it. Lord, help us as a church to guard against the things that would rob us of of effectiveness for Your kingdom, that would rob us of the unity of Your Spirit, that would rob us of being faithful with the message of the Gospel, that would rob us of sharing and experiencing and walking in the love of Christ. So Lord, help us each to guard against covetous thoughts and desires in our own life and within the body of Christ. Lord, let us put on display a true Christ-likeness in this world that those who are without hope would have people whom they could follow to the cross to get it. Lord, let us be those people Lord, for those, Lord, who right now find themselves in a place where they need to confess their sin and repent to you 
and begin to walk in step with you. Lord, I ask that you would help them today to make that turn, to no longer walk in the wrong direction, but Lord, to lay all that baggage at your feet and to say what your word says, that they are a new creation in Christ Jesus and they now want to walk in that. Lord, I ask that you would take their burden from them, that you would forgive them, that you would purify them from all unrighteousness and help them to begin to take some fresh steps in following you and you teaching them a new way. And Lord, for those who are yet on the, on the edge looking into your kingdom, they've been withholding themselves from you, though you've been appealing to them to come into this blessing that you have laid out for them, forgiveness of sin, full acceptance in the kingdom of God, and the presence of your Holy Spirit with them every day, the hope of eternal life when death of this body finally comes knocking on our door. Lord, I ask that you would help them to surrender themselves to you today at the foot of your cross to receive the gift of life and forgiveness that you offer to them today to say to you, God save me. Lord, I pray this for each one of us that you would be glorified through us and that a lost world would find hope in Christ through us being good ambassadors for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So anybody uh, been rolling along I-90 and all of a sudden you see uh, a, a black car that looks like it could be um, some important official looking vehicle, right? And all of a sudden you go, speed check, right? Where do your eyes go? There you go, oh, oh, speedometer. And you let up on the gas. And probably some of you let up on the gas before you ever think of anything else, right? You just, well... What I'm sharing with you today is not intended to be a finger pointing at you, to accuse you, to discourage you. It's a speed check. Believer, if you are seeking to honor God with your life, this is a speed check. God is warning us, do not covet. Guard against it. Don't let it be a part of your life in any way, shape, or form. Protect yourself as a follower of God. Protect the body of Christ by guarding yourself against it. Here's what Paul says, and this is what we need to grab onto to remember who we are. He says, for th- uh, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who we are, and that's how we walk as the people of God. Lord, bless and keep you this week.